18, our sermon passage this morning spans the portions of three chapters. We've already read the first part of the text, so we're going to finish it out now here in just a moment, beginning in verse 19 of chapter 18 and reading until verse 8 of chapter 19. It's a lengthy passage, as you can tell from the fact that we're reading 50 of these verses out loud. It's a lengthy passage, but we're keeping it all together because it really is one unit of material. And you can tell it's one unit because here we have the death of Absalom. Both how it happened and the response it generated. The death of Absalom here is the theme. So, let's continue on in this portion of God's Word. You can follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 19 of 2 Samuel chapter 18. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come, what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he had lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned, he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people who steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king, 
and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And the people came before the king. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Amen. Let's pray now and ask God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of His word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for Your help now by the Holy Spirit's work to illuminate our hearts and minds to understand savingly and rightly the things revealed to us in the Scriptures. Father, we know that all of God's Word, all of Your Word is breathed out, Father, and inspired by Your Holy Spirit. We know that all of Your Word, Father, all the sum of its parts is true and right and good. And so we pray, God, that we would hear Your Word today with faith and that we would believe it and that You would do Your good work among us. Father, give us eyes to see, we ask. Father, help me to speak things that are true and faithful to Your Word. Please grant us all discernment, Father, as we consider the Scriptures to know the truth from error. And may Your Son be glorified. And may Your will be done, Father. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Well, so ends the life of Absalom the traitor. What a heavy and difficult passage we have before us today in God's Word. There are many questions to answer from this text, but there are few easy answers that I can give you. We've been in the midst of Absalom's rebellion for some weeks now. If you're visiting with us, Absalom is the son of David. He has attempted to steal the throne from his father. We've been in the midst of Absalom's rebellion for some weeks now. Since chapter 13, we've watched at times with horror as Absalom plots and maneuvers his way to the throne. Let me just remind you of what this man has done. He used his grieving sister as a cover for his own anger. He murdered his brother in cold blood. He slandered his father. He stole the hearts of the people. And he instigated an armed rebellion against God's chosen king. Few men in human history have a track record as sinister and wicked as Absalom. List the worst people in human history that you know. Absalom is among their ranks. Few men in history are as sinister and wicked as this man. Methodically, Absalom has schemed to gain power. And he was willing to do whatever was necessary to get what he wanted. No action was off limits and no person was exempt from his scheming. But now the traitor dies. And make no mistake, friends, the author of 2 Samuel aims to give you a wide-eyed picture of Absalom's demise. He wants you to see 
in all of the grisly detail where Absalom's plot ends. I mean, just notice with me in your Bibles there in chapter 18 how the actual battle between the the, the two armies takes up only three verses, six to eight. But Absalom's death and his burial gets ten verses, nine to eighteen. The length reveals the emphasis. The battle is an afterthought. The focus is on how Absalom dies. This is the climactic battle that will restore David to the throne, perhaps, but perhaps even more importantly, it's also the dramatic end of Absalom's wickedness. You see, the Bible won't let you look away from this. It's like a train wreck. You can't take your eyes off of it. This is where the wicked meet their end. Not in a blaze of glory, but under a heap of stones, crushed by the justice of God. So ends the life of Absalom the traitor. But at the same time, this passage also reminds you that Absalom the traitor is still Absalom the son. And that makes Absalom's demise a difficult moment for David, who mourns greatly for his son. Listen, this is a very true-to-life passage. This is a very true-to-life passage. Life, as you well know, is rarely ever neat, and neither is this text. It's heavy, and it's complicated, and there are no easy answers. There are reasons to praise God, and there are reasons to grieve over sin's devastation, and they come from the same person. There are rash decisions and wise rebukes, and again, they come from the same person. There's the joy of a kingdom restored mixed with the sadness of a king dejected. And it all happens at the same time. You see, it's a very true-to-life passage. It's not neat and tidy. If you've ever wondered whether or not the Bible is realistic, here's a good reminder. It's not neat. It's not tidy. It's heavy. Absalom the traitor is also Absalom the son. So, where do you go from here? Where do we go from here with this heavy passage? Well, it helps to follow how the events of the passage unfold. When you're interpreting narratives in the Old Testament, it's a good rule of thumb. Follow the characters and or follow the plot. That's a good way to find your your path forward. If you watch how the action unfolds, you can find some help. While the interpersonal details are complicated, the action is actually pretty straightforward. Look there in your Bibles again and I'll show you what I mean. There are three broad sections to the passage. The first is chapter 17, verse 24, down to chapter 18, verse 8. That's the preparation for and the summary of the fighting. The second section is 18.9, down to 18.18. That's the detail about Absalom's death. And then the final section is 18.19 to 19.8. That gives you the response to Absalom's death, focusing primarily on David. So, the interpersonal stuff is hard, but the action moves ahead pretty clearly. Summary of the battle, detail on Absalom, focus on David. So, that's how we're going to proceed. I want that unfolding kind of three-step plot, that's going to be our guide. And from those three sections, we're going to notice three truths together. Each one's rooted in the context of what happens, but with each one we're also going to seek to build a bridge from David's day to our lives. Right? So let's get going. The first truth comes in that opening section, 1724 down to 18.8. And here we see God's promise protected. 
God's promise protected. You'll remember that David has already crossed the Jordan River. And he's encamped now at Mahanaim, which is a city in Gilead that apparently has remained loyal to David. But even among allies, David's relief is short-lived. Absalom is relentless. And you'll notice in verse 24 of chapter 17 that Absalom crosses the river too. And he encamps in Gilead as well. So the stage is set for a winner-take-all showdown. This is, without a doubt, the battle of David's lifetime. Goliath may be more memorable, but this battle is more consequential. Not only for David personally, but also for the kingdom of God. But as David approaches this consequential consequential battle, we find that the Lord is already at work. David is heading to battle and the Lord is going ahead of him. Through a series of seemingly small encounters, God prepares the situation so that David receives the help that he needs. Notice how it plays out in the passage. First of all, David receives provision from his friends. Look at verses 27-29 to of chapter 17. Three friends arrive at David's camp and they bring supplies. There are beds to sleep on, basins to wash in, and all kinds of food for preparing meals. Think of how timely this is for David. Remember, he and his people fled Jerusalem in a rush. It wasn't a well-prepared, you know, well-thought-out, pre-packed plan for a trip out into the country. This was a mad dash for their lives when they left. They didn't have the supplies necessary for living out in the elements. But the Lord does not leave them alone. In His kindness, God sends three friends. And those friends bring David life-giving provision. And understand, these are unlikely friends. Shobai is a pagan. He's an Ammonite. He's a pagan Gentile. Makir is a former servant of Saul, so he used to be on the wrong team. And Barzillai, for lack of a better phrase, is just plain old old. He's just old. He's so old, in fact, that in the next chapter, he can't even go with David back to Jerusalem. So if you were picking people to help you, these are not the people you would pick. You would not pick a pagan Gentile, a former Saul loyalist, and an old man. It's not who you would pick, but it's precisely whom God uses to send David the help that he needs. In his kindness, the Lord sends David some much needed provision. Along with the provision, David also benefits from the prudence of his commanders. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18. David organizes his army and then he announces that he will go into the battle as well. That's not a good idea for David to go. And David's commanders know it. Notice verse 3, they prudently tell David to stay behind where he'll be out of danger. And David, for his part, listens. He agrees to stay in the city, but not without issuing a final command. Notice verse 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now we see just how prudent their counsel is. This is the first hint that David is not thinking clearly. I mean, it's understandable on some level. Absalom is David's son. But that's just it. You have to think like the king, like the commander-in-chief, and not like Absalom's father. Just for a moment, imagine the devastation that might happen if David goes into the battle and his sentiment for his son puts his men at risk. Imagine the harm that might come to them. Imagine that even the battle might be lost. 
You see, the Lord is work. The Lord is at work even here, friends. He protects David from himself, even. He protects David from himself, and he does so through the prudent counselor of David's commanders. And so all the preparations are made, and we come to the battle, verses 6 to 8, chapter 18. But even here, we find that the Lord is already at work as David's army benefits from the providence of God. Notice in verse 6 where the battle is fought in the forest of Ephraim. This was apparently a densely wooded area, which makes it the perfect setting for a smaller army to attack a larger army. Remember, Absalom has the advantage on paper. He has more men. And if they fight out in the open, Absalom will probably win. So what does God do? He sets up the battle in a forest where David's smaller army can move quickly and use the obstacles to inflict greater damage on Absalom's larger force. And indeed, that's exactly what happens. Divine providence sets the stage for a great victory. Notice verse 7. And the men of Israel, that's Absalom's army here, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. And just like that, the rebellion is over. It's done. What took Absalom years to build, God smashes in three verses. Provision, prudence, providence. At every step of the way, the Lord has been at work protecting King David. But you'll remember that I entitled this point, God's promise protected, rather than God's king protected. Why talk about promise when the focus is on the king? Well, it's because the language of promise helps us make application from David's life to ours. Think about who David is, friends. He's the king of Israel, yes, but he's more than the king. David is also the bearer of God's promise. The promise is bound up with David. Think back to God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. In that covenant, the Lord made it very clear His promise to bless His people would come through David's royal line. So it's not an overstatement then to say that all that God has promised to Abraham and all that God has promised to Israel, all of that is now connected with David. With a son of David, to be precise. And that's where the bridge is built from David to us. As we watch the Lord protect David's life, we are not simply observing an episode in Israelite history. We're watching a snapshot, a preview of redemptive history. Of the battle of all the ages. God protects David, and in doing so, God protects the promise He has made to you and me. David bears the promise. In his flesh, in his body, he bears the promise of God. So you could put it like this, if Absalom cannot tear the kingdom away from David, then nothing will tear God's promise away from those who belong to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the connection from this passage to us, the connection is not that you and I will receive the same personal protection as David. Don't go out today and pick a fight thinking that God's going to win it for you. That's not the application. The application is actually much greater than that. It's that you and I belong to David's promised Son, the Lord Jesus. And therefore, how God acted in David's life to preserve and protect His promise is what He will do for you because you're in Christ who has received the fullness of David's promise Himself. 
That's what this battle is saying to us, brothers and sisters. God will not let His promises fail. He will not let His promise fail. Listen, I know that my saying that statement doesn't make life's troubles go away. When I say right here, God's promise will never fail, it doesn't make your life any easier than what it is right now. But I do hope, perhaps, that hearing that truth again today will be enough. Perhaps hearing again that God's promise will not be that God's promise will never fail. Perhaps hearing that today will be enough, just for today. Just for today. You can't do anything about yesterday, and you're not promised tomorrow. The Lord wants you to walk by faith today. And perhaps just hearing again that God's promise will not fail will be enough just for today to strengthen you to hold fast to the gospel. If Absalom could not tear the kingdom away from David, then nothing will tear God's promise away from those who belong to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first truth of this passage. And I pray that it strengthens you. It's the truth of God's promise protected. The second section of the chapter focuses on Absalom's death. And the truth here is quite different from the first. Here we see God's enemy cursed. God's enemy cursed. The emphasis on divine providence continues in verse 9. Notice what the text says, verse 9. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Friends, you shouldn't read that without thinking of what happened in chapter 17, verse 14. For the Lord ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That's the truth at work here. This isn't happenstance. Absalom didn't just happen to meet David's servants. This is the Lord working out His purposes. This is God doing what He has ordained to do. And this this is important, friends. You're going to misunderstand a lot of what I'm about to say if you don't hear this part right here. When evaluating Absalom, we have to remember that by rebelling against David, Absalom has also rebelled against God. David is the Lord's anointed, God's chosen king. To oppose David's position is to defy the God who put him there. Absalom's earthly rebellion is also an act of cosmic treason. He's raised his hand against David, yes, but he's also raised his hand against God. And therefore, what Absalom deserves is the wrath and justice of God. And strikingly, that's what Absalom receives. In fact, the details of Absalom's demise reinforce this sobering truth. Absalom is a man under God's curse. Absalom is a man under God's curse. And by curse, I mean he's cut off from God and destined for destruction. Both in the way he dies and the way he is buried, Absalom is a man under God's curse. Notice the way he dies. Verse 9. Absalom's head gets stuck in a tangle of tree limbs and he's suspended between heaven and earth. Most likely, it's Absalom's beloved hair that's the culprit here. Remember, Absalom only cut his hair once a year. And when he did, it got televised all across Israel. It was like a national show. They would weigh his hair and whoever was the closest won the prize and all that stuff. Remember? 
He had a lot of hair and everybody loved it. And he seemed rather proud of it himself too. But now, look where Absalom's pride leaves him. Hanging helplessly with death soon to follow. I mean, we cite it often, friends, but Proverbs 16.18 is perilously true. Pride goes before the destruction. And destruction soon, soon finds Absalom hanging in the tree. At first, though, it seems like he might escape. Notice verse 10. One of David's men sees Absalom, but instead of killing him, the soldier chooses to tell Joab. And unsurprisingly, Joab is pretty angry. He doesn't care what David has commanded. And in keeping with his character, Joab jumps into action. He grabs three spears. Not one, not two, three. Three spears. And he jams them into Absalom's heart. And then he tells his ten armor bearers, finish him off. It's gruesome, isn't it? Absalom, the man who was the most handsome in all of Israel, the man who stole everyone's hearts, the man who envisioned such grandeur and glory for himself, Absalom dies helplessly, even shamefully, hanging in a tree. His pride in more ways than one proves to be his downfall. But it's Absalom's burial that so forcefully highlights the curse of God on his life. After Joab's men finish their dirty work, Absalom's body is unceremoniously thrown into a pit. Notice verse 17. They took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. Now that's not how you would typically bury a person, especially a son of the king. So, why do David's men do this? Why dig a pit in the middle of the forest throw Absalom in it, and then heap a bunch of stones on top of him. Why do that? Well, the answer comes from Israel's past, specifically the book of Joshua. Do you remember the man Achan who stole the stuff from the city of Jericho even though God had told them don't take anything from the city of Jericho? Do you remember the man Achan? Do you remember how he brought trouble on Israel and they were defeated at the battle of Ai following his sin? Do you remember how Achan was buried? Listen to Joshua chapter 7. This is how Achan is buried. And they raised over Achan a very great heap of stones that remains to this day. You see, that's the reason behind Absalom's burial. Like Achan before him, Absalom has brought trouble on the people of God. And so like Achan before him, Absalom is under the curse. He's under the judgment of God. The great heap of stones is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Absalom's body is crushed under the stones just as his sinful rebellion has been crushed under the wrath of God. He dies under the curse. It's unsettling, isn't it? It's sobering, even. And the passage doesn't let you escape from it. So as we consider this sobering scene, I think it would be good to pause at this point and stress two specific takeaways for you and for me as Christians. I know it's unsettling. I know it's grisly. But there is both a reason for hope and a reason for humility in Absalom's death. The reason for hope is this. Absalom's demise reminds us that the kingdom of God stands forever. The kingdom of God stands forever. Absalom is the latest in a long line of wicked opponents who have sought to derail the purpose of God. 
Absalom's lineage goes back to the serpent in Genesis 3, and his line stretches forward to the Antichrist in Revelation 13. They're all a part of the same family. So when the sovereign God finally crushes Absalom's rebellion, the Lord is saying to you and to me, this is where all rebellions end. This is, where, this is what happens to the enemies of God. They may have their day in the sun, and they may prosper for a time, but eventually they all end up in the same place, crushed under the justice and judgment of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to be really clear with you on this. The judgment of God here is central to our hope as Christians. It's central to our hope. I know that God's judgment is not a popular topic, but if we minimize this truth, then we minimize the reason why we have hope for the last day. There are enemies of God in this world. There are wicked people who follow in Absalom's footsteps and oppose the rule of Christ. And at times, it seems as though those wicked enemies are winning. Where do we go in those times? Where do we go when it appears that God's kingdom may not come? That God's will may not be done? Where do you look on those days? You look to the history of God's people. And you see in passages like this one, the truth that God's people need to hear down through the ages, the truth that Absalom's demise so clearly proclaims the truth that God's kingdom stands forever. Where is Absalom? Crushed just like all the other enemies of God have been crushed. And that truth, as difficult and as sobering and as unsettling as it might be, that truth, brothers and sisters, should give us hope. The kingdom of God stands forever. And at the same time, there's also a reason for humility here. Absalom's death reminds me of what I deserve. I too was a rebel against God. I too was opposed to God's anointed one. I too was under the curse and deserved to be crushed under the wrath of God. But in His sovereign grace and with unfathomable mercy, the holy God determined to save rebels like me. Friends, I can't read Absalom's death without thinking of Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This passage humbles me with the thought that on my own, I have no reason to stand in the presence of the Holy God. It humbles me that on my own, do you know where I deserve to be? In a pit, crushed under a great heap of stones. It humbles me with the realization that I need the Gospel far more than I tend to think that I do. Perhaps that is what will strike you this morning, friends. Perhaps this vivid picture of God crushing His enemies, perhaps that vivid picture will awaken in you a deeper gratitude for the Gospel of Christ. It should be you in the pit. It should be me. Or perhaps this scene from the Old Testament will be what God uses to convict you that you don't know Christ by faith. That you haven't truly embraced His death and His resurrection as your only hope to stand before God. Whatever the case may be, I do pray that we're humbled here. And I pray that that humility might lead us to savor the Gospel in a way that brings glory to Christ.
And so we come to the end of the passage. We've seen God's promise protected and God's enemy cursed. Now in 18 verse 19 until 19 verse 8, we see God's king grieved. God's king grieved. The focus of this section is David's response to Absalom's death. So that's where our focus will be. You'll notice that verses 19 to 32 describe this tense and dramatic process of bringing word to David. Two messengers are dispatched. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, the priest, and a foreigner, a Cushite. Probably from somewhere near Ethiopia today, a Cushite. It's a detailed description, verses 19 to 32, but the point is straightforward. Both men give David good news that God has delivered him. That's the best news David can get. And both times David ignores them to ask about Absalom. You see, David's perception is a bit clouded at this point. His heart is heavy, and he can't seem to see the good news in front of him. He can't see it. And so, when he finally learns that Absalom is indeed dead... David's grief erupts in these memorable words. Verse 33, And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chambers over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. And then something unexpected happens. Joab, the scoundrel, Joab the rascal who often makes trouble. Joab who just ignored the king in order to kill Absalom. That Joab delivers a necessary and truthful rebuke. Joab does the right thing. You see, David's grief, which is understandable for a father, is out of place for a king. And that's what David is. He's he's the king. David's grief is causing shame for his men. Look at... Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 19. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. You see the problem, friends? This should have been a victory parade. This should have been a march of praise and thanksgiving to God. And instead, it's turned into a march of shame. For all these men who have risked their lives for David. That's why I say Joab's rebuke is necessary. Because David has lost sight of his responsibility as the king. I mean, even so though, Joab pulls no punches. He holds nothing back. Look at verse 5. He tells, he tells David he has covered with shame the faces of his men. Verse 6, he rebukes David for showing more loyalty to the enemy than he does for his faithful servants. I mean, it's It's rough. It's it's harsh even. It's the kind of rebuke that you would expect from Joab. He's hard. He's direct. But he's also right. The king needs to think about his men. And so in verse 7, Joab delivers the final blow. David needs to get up and express gratitude to his men or else he's going to have another rebellion that will make everything else he's experienced in his life look like a cakewalk. You better get up, is what Joab says. And that final rebuke, that final blow seems to shake David, seems to wake him up. Verse 8, look there. The king gathers himself, and he goes out to the gate, and he sits down, and he puts on the royal face, and he thanks his men. 
So the crisis is averted, and it happens through the most unexpected means. The scoundrel, Joab, has brought a hard but necessary rebuke. Why is David so grieved? That's the question that grips me, that captures my imagination as I think about this passage. Why is David so grieved? I I mean, on one level, yes, the, the easy answer there is right. It's just natural. Absalom is his son. And David is his father. And no matter what Absalom has done, David remains his father to the end. So I... I'm sure that that's part of it. And yet, I can't shake the thought that there's something else at work here in David's grief. Where did this horrible chain of events start? Absalom dying. Rebellion. Absalom dying. Amnon murdered. Tamar violated. Where did this horrible chain of events start? With David. Back in chapter 11 and his sin with Bathsheba. It started with David. Now that's not to say everything is David's fault or that Absalom bears no responsibility. And it's not to say that God is punishing David's children or David's kingdom because of David's sin. That's not my point at all. Rather, my point is that David's sin, just like every sin, has consequences. And those consequences are bitter. Friends, I'll contend that's what stirs David to say in verse 33 of chapter 18. Would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David is grieved for his son, yes. But I think David is also grieved and perhaps even a little bit crushed under the guilt of his own sin. Of what he has done. And then the passage ends. It's just over. There's no neat and tidy resolution. The passage ends with David's throne safe, but David's heart broken. And it's over. I'm not sure how you can read this grief-stricken and even guilt-laden moment in David's life without thinking of the promise in Isaiah 53. It's the promise that David needs in his grief. And it's the promise that you and I need as well. It's the promise of a Savior. The Son of David who would be greater than David. The servant of the Lord who would do the Lord's work. The King who would never taste the bitterness of guilt over his own sin, but who would instead drink the bitter cup of God's wrath for the sin of His people. David needs the promised Savior and so do you and I. So, as we watch Israel's king weeping in his grief, and perhaps even as you feel the weight of grief and guilt for your own sin today, as we watch Israel's king weep, perhaps the only place we can go is here, Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. 
2 Samuel 18 is a very true-to-life passage, friends. And there are no easy answers. But there is a faithful Savior, a King greater than David. His name is Jesus Christ. And He has taken not His own griefs and not His own sorrows, but your griefs and your sorrows and mine. And He has made them His own. And He has put them away once for all at the cross. I point you to Him today. For there's no sorrow too deep for His Gospel. Amen. Let's pray.